Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. We hope these messages encourage, convict, and inspire you to love and follow Jesus more faithfully as we seek to saturate our city with the hope of the gospel. Our online resources are meant to serve you, but they aren't a replacement for the face-to-face relationships that we were built for. So we really hope that if you're in Owensboro, you'll join us in person on a Sunday morning. And if you live elsewhere, you'll find a local church in your community where you can put down roots and find family. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 8. We'll be there in just a second. Uh, But we're in a sermon series called Confronting Christianity. We're dealing with some of the most difficult questions facing Christians today. And today's subject is, um, isn't Christianity homophobic? Isn't Christianity homophobic? And I want to begin by reading um, what one Christian author shared following an experience that she had. She wrote, and I quote, I squirmed in my seat avoiding eye contact with the women in my small group. They offered encouragement to a woman sitting next to me. She spoke in halting sentences, wiping away tears with a tissue they offered. She said, it's just awful. You can't even imagine. She was talking about her son, her gay son. Nobody knew that he was gay but me and her. She didn't even know that I knew. With tears in her eyes, the mother went on to share with the other ladies, Pete just needs prayer. We learned some things about him yesterday. I can't go into details, but he's falling away. This is just so terrible. I can't say what it is, but it's just so bad that I'd rather have learned he was dead. Something is terribly wrong in the church of Jesus Christ if we would rather a loved one be dead than gay. I hope that's an extreme rare example that no one in this room have or will ever experience. But either way, I am convinced that the church of Christ And I don't just mean our particular church, but I mean the universal church. The church has largely failed in addressing this issue. 83% of LGBTQ people grew up in church. And yet many of them grew up in the church thinking that Christians and God hate them. So where have we gone wrong? Let's stand out of respect for the reading of God's word, John chapter eight. This is a story John gives us about Jesus. And early in the morning, I'm starting in verse two, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to Jesus and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Jesus, what do you say? It's a quick commentary here. Adultery was one of the three most uh, 
hated worse sins in Jewish law, punishable by death. So in Leviticus 20.10, the Bible said, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So adultery is a big deal. But then three verses later in the Old Testament law, so now in Leviticus 20.13, look at what the Bible says. If a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So in Old Testament law, adultery and homosexuality are lumped together. Uh, they're both sins, and they're both uh, called for the same punishment. Now, I tell you that because in John chapter 8, when they bring to Jesus a woman caught in adultery, we have every reason to believe, according to the law, that Jesus would have viewed and treated the, the person caught in adultery in the same way he would a person that was practicing homosexual. Okay, so the way Jesus responds here is the way we would assume he would respond today to someone same-sex attracted and or living in same-sex relationship, okay? So knowing that, verse four, they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test Jesus, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. We'll talk later about what I think maybe he was writing. And as they continued to ask Jesus, Jesus stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. So Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Thank you. You can be seated. There are two unbiblical extremes or ditches that Christians and churches are, are tempted to take on this issue of homosexuality or same-sex attraction. It's two extremes. The first is that we dismiss or reinterpret the Bible's clear teaching on homosexuality and sexuality in general. And we completely endorse and support all that comes with the LGBTQ movement. That's one extreme to avoid. Many professing Christians in the name of political correctness have done this. But that approach not only goes against the traditional and ancient view that God's people have had for 5,000 plus years, that approach is in contradiction to the word of God. But here's the second unbiblical extreme view that many churches are prone towards. And that is when professing Christians display unwelcoming, judgmental, holier-than-thou attitudes towards those in the gay community, treating homosexuality like it's worse than all of our sins. Because sometimes we forget homosexuality doesn't send you to hell because being straight doesn't get you to heaven. I hope we can agree that gay or straight, we're all sinners who need Jesus desperately. So true biblical Christianity falls into neither extreme, that is full-blown affirmation or alienation. The culture demands you do one of those two. You must not do. There's a third way. There's a third way. 
It is the way of Jesus. It is the way of truth and grace. So in John chapter 1, verse 14, speaking of Jesus, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Most of us on this issue are prone more towards one or the other. We want to go all truth. This is what the Bible says. Boom, boom, boom. But we struggle with grace and humility. Others of us want to go full-blown affirming. We're all grace. Who are we to judge? Neither are right or biblical. We want to be full of truth, never compromising, but full of grace and humility, knowing we ourselves are the worst of sinners, as Paul said. So on this issue, here's what the church must do. Two things, in light of truth and grace. Number one, we must firmly hold to the truth of the word of God's teachings on sexuality, even if it's totally out of step with the culture. Because if what the Bible says about homosexuality is true, how can it be loving for us not to tell the truth? That would actually be hate for us not to speak the truth. But secondly, we must lay down our stones, as Jesus would say, and display the loving and welcoming grace of Jesus to all people, regardless of their sexual attraction. Truth and grace. That's the way of Christ. That's the way our church must take. So let's begin with, uh, what is the truth about God's design for sexuality? Well, from the very beginning, God ordained that human sexuality be expressed between a man and a woman only in the covenant of marriage. And the Bible makes no exceptions to that. From the very beginning, the first wedding, Genesis 2, verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then in Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10, when Jesus addresses sexuality and marriage, he always goes back to God's original design in Genesis. And here's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus was a Jew who would have perfectly abided by Old Testament law. So Jesus recognizes no form of sexual expression outside of one man, one woman in the context of marriage. Jesus was clear on that. But still, there's this objection often that says, well, Jesus never directly addressed homosexuality. Two responses to that. One, in Matthew 15, 19, for example, Jesus directly confronts what the Bible refers to as sexual immorality. When you see that term or phrase sexual immorality in the New Testament, it's translated from a Greek word, porneia, which is kind of a kitchen sink term for all kinds of sexual sin, meaning any kind of sexual activity outside the context of one man, one woman in marriage, including same-sex practice. So in that sense, because Jesus forbid that, he did address same-sex sin. But secondly, Jesus' teachings on sexual morality were actually more intense and more strenuous than even those in Old Testament law. Remember, Jesus always comes along and raises the bar. He didn't just say, don't uh, commit adultery. He said, don't even lust in your heart. So Jesus raises the standard from the Old Testament, which 
in fact, did forbid same-sex practice. But it's not just Jesus. The scripture prohibits the practice of homosexuality. So, for example, in Genesis 19, we see the narrative of God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was a community known for their same-sex promiscuity. In Leviticus 18 and 20, we see same-sex intercourse is labeled as an abomination before God. Then in the New Testament, the Bible uses the following language to describe same-sex practice. In Romans 1, it uses the term dishonorable, contrary to nature, and error. In 1 Timothy 1, the Bible uses words like ungodly, unholy, profane, and contrary to sound doctrine. And then in Jude verse 7, it uses the term unnatural desire. And then in two of his lists that exclude people from the kingdom of God, the apostle Paul includes uh, homosexual activity in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. So on this issue, the Bible does not whisper, as it's been said. The Bible is clear. Still here are two common objections. One, what if I am born with same-sex attraction? If God made me this way, how can it be wrong? That's a really good question. That's one we need to speak to from Scripture. So let's do a little uh, theology of how we're born, okay? So the Scripture says in Psalm 51, verse 5, for example, that we're all born into sin. So because of Adam and Eve's sin, that's been passed on down to us. And because of the curse, we all inherit a sin nature from birth. No one is born good, okay? And so that sin nature we're all born with manifests itself differently in each of us. In other words, we all have certain natural bents or proclivities towards certain sins more than others, right? I mean, some of us just from the time we were a two-year-old have had this natural bent more towards anger, right? That's just kind of always been the thing we struggle with most in, in a way that others don't, perhaps. For some of us, it's, it's jealousy. We've always just really struggled with jealousy or maybe it's pride. For others, it's greed. So we all have particular disorderings in which our sin nature uniquely acts out. We all have besetting sins, as it were, and things we're more prone towards. Well, in the same way, in our sin nature, all of us are disordered sexually. All of us are disordered sexually because we're born into sin. So all parts of us are corrupted in some sense. Okay, so for example, for many of us with heterosexual attractions, that disordering we have means there are times when we have heterosexual desires outside the context of marriage. But the real question is not whether or not we're born with that proclivity or if we chose that desire. The question is, do we act on it? So to simply be, for example, attracted to a person of the opposite sex we're not married to, that is not a sin in and of itself. But it becomes sin when we give in to the lust of the heart and then pursue that desire in the flesh. Well, the same is true with same-sex attraction. Most people do not choose to be attracted to the same sex. In fact, especially for those who are seeking to follow Jesus, oftentimes they have prayed for years and years that that attraction to the same sex would go away. This is true for a man in our church who wrote to me and gave me permission to share. He wrote, 
quote, my first memory knowing I was same-sex attracted was four years old. And he goes on to share how his whole life, uh, he is one who is seeking to follow Jesus. He has prayed and prayed that that attraction would go away because he knew that it wasn't God's plan. And he writes, quote, he says, I'd give anything to be normal and to fit in with the majority of people and to fit the Christian mold. So perhaps a number of you either here or listening online can relate to that. But here's, here's the big point, okay? Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin says it well. She says, we do not choose our sexual attractions, but we do choose our sexual actions. Okay, so we don't choose who we're attracted to, but we do choose whether or not we choose to act on that. So for example, just because some of us are born with a uh, proclivity towards anger, it doesn't mean it's okay for us to have fits of rage, right? Well, just because we may be born with same-sex tendencies or desires does not mean we have to act on that. It's a choice every day to walk in holiness and purity, even if that's not the, the natural desire that we have. I think sometimes Christians wrongly assume, this is an area where I think the church has been wrong, I think, I think we assume that if a same-sex attracted person is saved or if they truly want to follow Jesus, that their same-sex attraction will go away. And so you have some that would practice things like conversion therapy, et cetera. Oh, you know Jesus. You, you won't like boys anymore. Well, when we meet Jesus, sometimes particular sinful desires go away, don't they? So, for example, we all know of testimonies of alcoholics who met Jesus, and supernaturally, Jesus took away that desire to drink, and they don't have no desire to drink again. That does happen sometimes. God can do that. But God doesn't always do that. There are other alcoholics, even after they meet Jesus for the rest of their life, it is a real temptation, and they have to fight that flesh all the time. They gotta be careful where they go. They gotta be careful who they hang out with. That, that desire never goes away to drink. Well, the same is true with same-sex attraction. Following Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that attraction will go away any more than my personal proclivity towards anger has gone away since I met Jesus. I gotta fight it every single day. But with Jesus now, we have the power of the Holy Spirit, don't we? To resist sin and choose righteousness. So, so while we may not choose our sexual attractions, we do get to choose our sexual actions. Now, here's another objection. Uh, someone who uh, is same-sex attracted might say this. God is love, and if God wants, you know, God, so therefore he wants me to be happy. And so God would never want me to deny my desires. Well, here's how I think Christ speaks to that. In Luke, um, sorry, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him or her deny himself or herself. If you want to be a Christian, Jesus says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So 
what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, by definition, to be a Christian is to die to ourselves every day. It is to die to our fleshly desires every single day. So following Jesus, listen, it's not about finding our sexual identity. Following Jesus is about losing ourselves in Christ. We surrender everything to him. That's what repentance is. Paul says, I die daily. So that is why in the opening passage we read from in John 8 this morning, notice how Jesus handles this. They bring to him this woman caught in sexual sin, and he does not stone her. He forgives her. He loves her. He does not condemn her. But what is the last thing he says to her in verse 11? He says, go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, he gives grace. He speaks truth. Jesus loves us too much to let us stay in our sin because he knows our sin will hurt us and those around us. So Jesus tells this woman, he says, go and sin no more. But notice what he does not say to her. He does not say to her, it will be easy. In fact, in other places that we already read, Jesus says things like, take up your cross and follow me. Taking up a cross is hard work. So friends, surrendering or not giving in to unholy sexual desires, whether same-sex or heterosexual, surrendering those to Jesus, not giving in to them, may feel like carrying a cross. And for many, it is a cross you will carry your whole life. That desire may never go away. And while that cross is heavy and that cross hurts, it is a beautiful thing when we carry that cross for Jesus because he carried it for us first. Rachel Gilson is a same-sex attracted woman, yet who has chosen to follow Jesus and live a, a life of sexual purity in spite of the fact she is still to this day attracted to the same sex. Here's what she writes. She says, for people like me who experience same-sex attraction, the world begs us to believe that our authentic selves are only found in giving in. It promises hero status if we submit to our attractions. As from a serpent in a garden, each one of us receives a tailored temptation, maybe a neighbor, an office mate, or a friend's wife. She says, but there is good news. Jesus really is more beautiful, more worthy, and more satisfying than anything else. Same-sex attracted believers, assaulted as we are from right and from left, need to taste and see that the Lord is good. We must experience this never-ending person, Jesus, who delights in us and delights in righteousness. So, that is the truth about what the Bible teaches on sexuality. But now let's, let's talk about, on a practical level, what does it look like then for a church to be filled with the welcoming grace of Jesus? So what does it mean to hold to convictional truth as a church, even when it's politically not correct, but at the same time, to have the open arms of Jesus putting down our stones? 
I think there's five things, and I'll go through these quickly, that the Church of Christ must do on this issue. And the first is we must, friends, repent of hypocrisy. We must repent of hypocrisy. I, I know where I grew up, um, and maybe this is true for you, I remember preachers and deacons would rant and rave about people who smoked cigars or had tattoos. I mean, that was the thing you did not do in Katie's Kentucky. But I remember while they would rant and rave about cigars and tattoos, I'm going to get in trouble, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, crack a barrel, you know. Uh, they were 100 pounds overweight, many of them. Let's just, we're mostly adults here. Let's just shoot straight. Most of them were 100 pounds overweight on their fifth trip through the potluck uh, buffet line at church. And I'm like, well, gluttony's a sin too. Hey, bro, how about taking that honey bun out of your own eye before you worry about that tattoo on her back? Nobody likes hypocrites. So in John 8, uh, when the woman is caught in sexual sin and brought to Jesus, the people want to stone her. But in verse 6, as they were condemning her to Jesus, look at what he did. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And then in verse 8, he did it again. He, he writes in the dust with his finger. Now, what did he write? The Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote. Many Bible scholars believe, and I agree, that what Jesus was writing out in the dirt was the sins of the very people that were accusing this woman. So they're ranting and raving about her affair, and he's down here writing gluttony, fits of rage, jealousy, pride, greed. And here's why I think he did that, because of verse 7, look at what happened. Jesus said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then you know what happens. They all, uh, realizing at this point, Oh, man, I'm a hypocrite. They, they put down their stones and they walk away one by one. So I think for those of us who same-sex attraction is not part of our story, I think we need to remember same-sex sin is not the only sin. How many of us point fingers at the same-sex attracted, but we look at pornography? How many of us look down on the LGBTQ community, but we're having sex outside of marriage or pursuing an unbiblical divorce? How many of us want to throw stones at the same sex attracted, but our hearts are filled with bitterness and anger? How many of us condemn gay people but we gossip all the time about people that we work with and people we go to church with. How many of us stand in judgment of gay people, but our hearts are filled with pride and self-righteousness, and we don't remember the last time we told someone we're sorry or I was wrong? How many of us point fingers at the same sex attracted, but we're thieves? Because as Malachi 3 says, we rob God of our tithes and offerings. 
Some of us are prideful, self-righteous gossips. But we sleep well at night. Because you know what? Dang it, at least I'm not gay. So the biggest difference um, in a lot of professing Christians and a number of gay people is we're just a lot better at hiding our sins. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 7, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Some of us need to go ahead and make an appointment this week with a spiritual ophthalmologist. Friends, how do you know if you truly understand the gospel of God's grace? You, you know you truly understand the gospel only when we are more angry about our sin than we are everybody else's sin. Here's the second thing, though, Christians got to do on this issue. We must eliminate the stigma that comes with singleness and celibacy. There are many followers of Christ who find themselves same-sex attracted. And many of them that I have spoken with are fighting it, and they are committed to holiness, but it's a real battle. Those desires have not gone away from the, for them. And in those cases, singleness, and therefore celibacy, is the most God-honoring option. Jesus spoke to that, by the way, in Matthew chapter 19. He calls some people to a life of singleness and celibacy. But, but here's the challenge with that. Too often in the church, and I think we've been guilty of this Pleasant Valley at times. We so elevate marriage and the nuclear family, it leaves those that are single feeling less than and excluded. And in doing so, not only do we forget that the Apostle Paul encouraged singleness and actually saw singleness as preferable over marriage, we forget that our Lord himself was single and celibate. Jesus. And we forget that marriage is only a temporary state. We will not be married in heaven to anyone but the Lamb of God. We say to our kids and grandkids growing up, oh, you know, who's your boyfriend? Who's your girlfriend? When are you going to get married? Well, what we are communicating to them is, well, what if God doesn't have that for them? Are they less than? Are they a failure? Are they not living the true abundant life if they don't have a spouse, kids, white picket fence, and a couple dogs and two weeks vacation? The, the Christian church has, I think, portrayed that is the true abundant life God has. But we forget that Jesus taught plainly spiritual family supersedes and is superior to our biological families. So when we create a culture in the church when it feels like you're only experiencing the true abundant life of God if you're married with kids, then we leave our single and same-sex attracted friends feeling isolated with no place to belong. But we were all created for family and community. But if that sense of family and community is not found among the people of God holding to a historical Christian ethic on sexuality, for many of our same-sex attracted friends, they will be inclined to go find that community somewhere else. 
in the LGBTQ affirming world. And so what that means is that our church family, Pleasant Valley, has to be a place where everybody feels like they can belong. Kids or no kids, single or married, attracted to the same sex or attracted to the opposite sex. All are not just welcome, but are wanted and needed. So Pleasant Valley, by God's grace, let's not be a country club full of only straight people. Let's be a family of refuge for all people, calling everyone to holiness and sexual purity, but doing it in a spirit of grace and a place where, hey, we can do this together. Your sin struggle may look different than mine, but I'm no better than you, and we're gonna walk through this together. And it's a safe place for you to be honest about what you're dealing with. You may struggle with same-sex attraction. I struggle with anger. I'm no better. You may struggle with same-sex attraction. I can struggle with wandering eyes for the opposite sex. I'm no better. We all need Jesus the same. But we experience Christ most sweetly when we do it together as family. Now, here's what that means, number three. This is gonna be a challenge for our church, and I hope we're ready for it. Our church must be, third, a place where friendships can develop and open, honest conversations about same-sex attraction can take place without fear or judgment. Think about this with me. With no other sin or temptation do we tell people to clean themselves up before they can come. We don't do it with porn addicts or alcoholics. We don't do it with people who have had affairs or with people who uh, maybe had a divorce that was unbiblical. We don't do it with those that have the sin of pride. We don't do it with people who rob God of their tithes and offerings. We don't turn our nose up at those things. We welcome with open arms. Like, you know, come as you are, and we will help love you through this. So why do we treat same-sex attracted people differently? Why is that like the one thing that makes us get squirmy and judgmental? I mean, the devil got kicked out of heaven because he was prideful, not because he was gay. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives a list of people who practice certain sins that he says, if you, know, if you keep living in these sins without repenting, you won't see heaven. And if you go read that list, I would bet we're all guilty of at least one thing on that list. No, I am. And so he, he lists things like you know, gossip, uh, drunkenness, uh, having affairs, uh, practicing homosexuality. He lists all these sins. If you keep living in this and you don't repent, you won't see heaven. But then look what he does in verse 11. He says, and some of you in the church at Corinth used to be like this. Other translations say, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now think about this with me. What that means is some of the very first Christians who came into the Christian church did so with same-sex histories and same-sex proclivities. 
and God used them to help shape and form the early church. He says, such were some of you practicing homosexuals. Now, they didn't keep living in that. Verse 11 says, Christ saved them. Christ sanctified them. He helped them walk in holiness now. But, but how? Because they were able to know Christ and have encouragement and accountability in their struggle and not do it in the closet, as it were, all by themselves precisely because they were welcomed into the church and not shunned. Now, fast forward 2,000 years. Again, 83% of folks in the LGBTQ community grew up in church. So what that means is in our church right now, Pleasant Valley, there are undoubtedly men and women who are attracted to the same sex the majority of which may be hiding that part of their lives. Because historically in the church, that's just something you don't talk about. That has to change. If the church of Jesus Christ is not a place where we can feel the safety and freedom to open up about the most private things in our heart and lives, then we do not understand the gospel. Shame on us. So let's reflect on these six questions. Number one, is your community group, discipleship group, or accountability group a safe place where someone could share if they are attracted to the same sex? If not, it should be. Number two, are, are your church groups or your friend circles a place where complete transparency and vulnerable friendships can be cultivated and maintained? In other words, hey, buddy, when we're having breakfast once a week at Panera, whatever you got, I can handle it. You ain't got to hide it. I'm still going to be your friend. Number three, if one of your friends was dealing with same-sex attraction, would they feel comfortable telling you? And if not, what does that say about our humility and the grace in us? Number four, if one of your children or grandchildren was wrestling with same-sex attraction, would they feel comfortable telling you? Parents and grandparents, if the answer to that question is no, we got a lot of work to do. Number five, if the person sitting in front of you in the pew this morning is wrestling with same-sex attraction, are we going to be the kind of church where they can stay and not be ostracized, but loved and welcomed. And number six, would a person that is same-sex attracted be welcome in your home? If the answer is no, man, we got some stuff to do with Jesus. We gotta work on. All right, last two things. Number four, perhaps as a church, we need to ask forgiveness. To all of our friends who are attracted to the same sex and you've not felt like the church is a place where you can be honest about that, I sincerely ask your forgiveness. To the extent that we or any other church has created a kind of culture where you can't be honest about that, we have been wrong. And if or when any professing Christian has bullied you or been cruel to you or hateful to you, they were wrong, they sinned, 
and they do not represent the heart of Christ. And for this, on behalf of those people, we sincerely ask your forgiveness. You are loved and you are wanted here. And lastly, number five, whatever our sin struggle, we must remember that Jesus is better. Only Jesus satisfies. I'll conclude with these words from Rebecca McLaughlin, who herself lived a gay lifestyle for years before surrendering her life to Jesus. She writes, and I quote, some of my same-sex attracted friends experience a drum-like beat of sexual temptation. But this is also true for many heterosexual Christians, whether they are married and struggling to be faithful to their spouses or single and longing for marriage. Ultimately, every Christian is called to sexual self-restraint. Saying yes to Jesus means saying no to sexual freedom. But it does not mean missing out. At its best, marriage is meant to leave us wanting more. It points us to a far more fulfilling relationship. Like a print of the Mona Lisa, a human being created in God's image can neither can never be as stunning as the original. Jesus is, by definition, infinitely more beautiful, compelling, and capable of love. At the resurrection, no one who has chosen Jesus over sexual fulfillment will have missed out. Compared with that relationship with Jesus, human marriage will seem like a toy car next to a Tesla or a kiss on an envelope versus a lover's embrace. Friends, whatever temptations we are all facing today, Jesus is better. So we fight temptation to sin with the superior pleasure found in Jesus alone. Let's bow our heads. I'd like to ask our music team and ministry team to come forward. As we do, we always create space for response. And so this message has landed in all kinds of different ways. And so we just want to take a few moments and give each of us space to process this with the Holy Spirit. I just want to encourage you, say, Spirit of God, here I am. I am listening. What do you have for me in light of this sermon? What sin are you convicting me of? What change do I need to make? We'll have our ministry team uh, here at the front on my left and right. I'll be standing down here in the middle. We'll have folks back by either of these exit doors in the room with lanyards. If you'd like someone to pray with you, even about something totally unrelated to today's uh, message, that's fine. We're, we're here. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you through this. But just take several moments here and sit with the Lord and see what he's calling you to do. Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc.